I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. So we did change the process quite a bit because the original founder was still creating it using a process that was very laborious and something that would have been done in the 1800s. And we needed to figure out a way to scale it up and mass manufacture it. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, SkinFix CEO Amy Regan gets candid about the challenges of taking a little skincare product out of a garage in rural Canada into the U.S. market. But after hitting the jackpot with a national Target store rollout, the SkinFix team learned some tough and valuable lessons. When your competitors are bringing the data saying you're not performing and you don't have the data to combat that, it's a challenge. Would so, you have bought the data earlier if you did it all over again? thousand percent. Yeah. It would have been the best investment we could have made at the time. We didn't know that. So for all of you future skincare entrepreneurs out there, if you're going into mass, buy the data. Now with the successful QVC launch under its belt, SkinFix is making big moves in e-commerce. But as a beauty industry veteran, Amy's journey from corporate to startup life hasn't been easy. Unfinished Biz starts now. You know, Robin, I may not be a beauty expert, but last time I checked, Halifax, Nova Scotia, probably not high on the list as a beauty industry hub. I think you'd be right. And I don't think that Amy would disagree, seeing that she's a seasoned executive, uh, having worked at L'Oreal and Estee Lauder. But honestly, life just brought her to Canada and she stumbled on an incredible brand. It's not just a brand, but it's the brand and formula that gave her enough conviction to bet on herself and take on the likes of the big corporate skincare companies. Luckily, we were able to catch up with Amy in her former stomping grounds of New York City, where she walked us through her story. I worked in the beauty industry in New York and the UK for about 17 years and then decided to give it all up and move to Canada to raise my family. And I thought I had left the beauty industry behind, sadly. And uh, I met a woman named Karen Warner who had an incredible... Where did you move in Canada? To Halifax, Nova Scotia, population 250,000. Most Canadians haven't been to Nova Scotia, sadly. It's not a metropolis, but it's a beautiful place. It's just above Maine on the East Coast. So as you fly over to Europe from New York, you fly over us. You can wave. Is it in the Atlantic time zone? Yeah. So it's an hour later than New York. Look at that. I, I do remember the first time I actually called you and I was like, oh, wait, I've got to calculate this. Right. I've got to figure out what's Am I calling her in the middle of the night here? What am I doing? So, no. And Newfoundland is another half an hour still. So Newfoundland is an hour and a half later than New York, which is weird. So I moved back and I uh, met this woman who had this amazing healing balm formula that had been her great-great-grandfather's. And he had developed it in Yorkshire, England in 1870. And I had a look at the balm, and I'd worked in the skincare business for a long time, and they used some ingredients that I'd never seen before. And the product worked wonders on my daughter's eczema, and it helped heal my cracked heels overnight. So I started to send it around to some friends in New York and sort of ask people what they thought. And uh, I was encouraged to buy the, buy the business and build a brand off the back of it. Was she looking to sell the business, or how did that even how that conversation even come up? Good question. Not initially. She was looking for some marketing support, so I was initially introduced to her as a potential marketing consultant to help her build a plan and potentially help her raise some money. And as we got talking, she said, "You know, I haven't met anyone that." really has the same vision that I do for this brand and for this product. A lot of people were quite interested in her formula, actually, and there were some other contract manufacturers and other folks that were sort of sniffing around. But she was very protective about the product. She had trademarked the SkinFix name, which is a brilliant name, and she had a vision for a product to be sold at retail. And I very much aligned with her vision for the brand, and so she asked me if I would be interested in buying the company. Was it sold in retail at the time? It was. Uh, she was in Shoppers Drug Mart in Canada, and she was in Lawton's, which is a regional drugstore in Atlanta, Canada. And so when you when you bought into the business, describe a little bit sort of how 
what was the the size of the organization? What, what were you actually getting yourself involved with? Well, it was uh, Karen. She was the um, entire company. So she made the product. <laughs> she marketed the product. Uh, she raised the money. She did everything. And she was actually quite quite smart. You know, she had very limited resources to spend and she spent them wisely in the right, in the right areas. She had done some great work in getting some awards. Uh, she had secured Shoppers Drug Mart, which is the largest drug chain in Canada and arguably one of the most important accounts we have to this day. Um, and she had effectively one healing balm formula that she at that time was really marketing as a diaper rash product. And when I was initially introduced, it had a lot of efficacy for eczema and dermatitis, and there were a lot of testimonials for com- from consumers who had used the balm for skin conditions. So I thought that diaper was really not the category we wanted to pursue, that we really wanted to expand the line more into a dry skin problem solution uh, product line. Was uh, it being sold in the in the baby section? Yes. Yeah, originally. So was it a challenge to reposition it out of there after... No, because it was only in distribution in Canada with really with one retailer at that point. So uh, we talked to shoppers and sort of showed them what our vision was for the brand, which was initially just to roll it into four healing balms. So we kept the diaper product and then we created the eczema products for baby and for adults. And then we created an adult rash product originally, like a chafing skew. And they were really excited about the potential for the brand and the relaunch um, so it wasn't terribly difficult. At how that how different are the formulas between the SKUs, or is it more of a positioning dynamic? So now they're quite different. At the time, they were not different. <laughs> when uh, when she originally sold the product, she had a diaper product, but she also had sort of an everything body paste product, and that was this basically the same formula. So we've adjusted the formulas to be more targeted and introduced things like colloidal oatmeal into the healing balm to treat eczema. And uh, we are you know, very, uh, very much about finding ingredients that target specific skin concerns. So our formulas have evolved to be extremely different from one another. But you said she was making it herself. When you expanded the line, was she still making the product? She was. She was making it in her garage in a big... Oh, but was, it, was it a big garage? It was fairly big. It was a three-car garage. Oh, right. nice. Good, good. But she had an expanded <laughs> this, garage. That's this good. This would not have worked. If it was a two-car, two it, yeah. it would have been lack of capacity. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, so she made it in a big kettle. It was a very complicated process to make the formula, and she made it over a couple of days and then hand-filled it and capped it and packed it, and the truck would pull up, and she would load the pallets herself, and they would take them off to Shoppers Drug Mart. So... Pretty incredible. That is. And, and how long did you, how long did she remain the, the, the manufacturer for the product after you acquired the business? So we assumed manufacturing at that point. So myself and I had one employee who was sort of an accountant slash production manager. We started making the product pretty much immediately after we bought the formula from her and we moved it into another garage <laughs> <laughs> three car <laughs> no it was a much smaller garage a smaller garage so we basically um yeah we rented a facility and we started making it ourselves and she stayed on board for about six months just to make sure we were making it correctly and we sort of had transferred all the ip if you will and we started making it just to keep ourselves in business but we immediately started looking into contract manufacturers which is why we didn't rent a very big garage because we didn't anticipate being there for very long so within the first year we found a contract manufacturer in toronto who was going to make it for us on an ongoing basis before we get too far were there any major surprises when you acquired the business uh, there were lots of surprises. Um, <laughs> the first was that Shoppers was actually planning to delist the product and send it all back to us. So that was um, an interesting piece of news to discover in the first stuff. few weeks. Yep. Um, and then we also discovered that the product, uh, it was natural, but she had been using an ingredient that had a paraben in it that we didn't realize was in there. So we had to make sure we reformulated out of that ingredient. Um, and were you making a natural claim at the time or was she making a natural claim on the was, product? She was, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think she actually realized that one of these ingredients that she was putting in the product was preserved. 
But uh, my team and I, at that point, we had three of us. I hired a product developer. We're really, obviously, very you know, experienced in the industry and knew that we had to make sure everything was legit and done properly. So was the team based in Halifax at this point in time? And so you were recruiting beauty execs and, and people kind of in, in the category. Was that a, a hard thing to do? And obviously, you're coming from a background in the UK and the US at Estee Lauder. This is, it feels like it's, it can be kind of different. Yes, yeah. So our first employee, who was the accountant and production assistant, was based in Halifax and from Halifax. But then our second employee, who is our product developer, is from New York, New Jersey, and she still lives here. So she worked remotely for the business. And most of the work she was doing was with contract manufacturers. So she was on the road a lot uh, to Toronto, and so it wasn't... uh, it it worked that she was remote and she's still with the business and still remote, but she had come from Estee Lauder. She was at Creme de la Mer when I hired her. And prior to that, she'd been at Strivectin. She created Frederick Hair Care. So she had a phenomenal background in product development, which, uh, which was really great. It was great to get someone like that on board. And and it was tough to convince her, but she was, uh, she's entrepreneurial uh, at heart and uh, she, loved the formula and loved the idea of getting involved. So we were lucky. And what was, what was the pitch? So, you know, sort of leaving something that, you know, was in in sort of that prestige skincare space, uh, to something that obviously is a bit more of a startup. What was, what was your pitch to her? Yes. Well, so our, my first boss from L'Oreal, Hillary Solomon, who's now the CEO at uh, Kevin O'Quan introduced us because she had worked with Francine at Fakai. So she was sort of my broker, if you will, and she took us to brunch, and we, you know, we gave Fran a few Bloody Marys, and Hillary <laughs> was really <laughs> instrumental in sort of telling her what a great opportunity this was to be part of a startup, and how smart I was, and how she was sure this was going to be a success. <laughs> so we sort of, you know, uh, came at her two on one and convinced her to to jump on board. It's amazing the turning points of of the critical team members that come on the to join the team and and help and help really see align with your vision. Yeah, I think Fran was instrumental as well in getting us early beauty editor support because she was sort of our credibility factor. You know, if you've worked on Creme de la Mer and you've worked on Stratin and Fakai, and you're talking to a beauty editor about this and Hydra's Healing Balm, which seems to be a bit of an odd product to be pitching to a beauty editor, I think they stood up and took notice more so because Fran was, was involved and, and really, you know, knew what she was doing and knew what she was talking about and really understood the formulas and why they worked so well and was able to communicate that. So what was the, so the turning point of her joining the business, did it change, did it change the product architecture and the formulations at that point? It did. So we brought her on board really to initially help us figure out how to contract the manufacturing process. And we did change the process quite a bit because the original founder was still creating it using a process that was very laborious and something that would have been done in the 1800s. And we needed to figure out a way to scale it up and mass manufacture it. So that was sort of France first responsibility. And then it was to help us figure out how to formulate for these specific conditions. And then also to map out sort of what happens next. You know, what is this brand going to stand for? What is it that we're going to be about? What other conditions might we be able to treat? How might we formulate to treat those conditions? Also, what how to navigate the regulatory environment. She's been really instrumental in working, you know, uh, with Health Canada and the FDA and mining their monograph system to make sure that our claims are correct and um, that we're saying what we need to say about the product, testing the product in the right way. She's also found regulatory consultants for us. So she's been instrumental in really uh, making sure that we're doing this the right way. So what was the biggest surprise when you took the product into contract manufacturing? Yeah, you know, our biggest issue was compatibility with the tube because we had found a new tube vendor in Toronto that was creating a tube that was a single uh, process. So you blow polypropylene basically through a cylinder and the label gets sort of embedded into the polypro, which gives you a much cheaper tube because they're just easier to manufacture and a nice... uh, pliability for our product because we have balms and you need a 
tube that's a little more pliable to get the, the bomb out, more, sort of like a toothpaste tube. So we loved the tube. We were really happy. But the product basically was eating the tube. And in typical startup fashion, we had done enough compatibility to think that maybe we were okay. And we took the risk and bought the tubes and started filling. And then at the end, the product started failing compatibility. So we had to stop manufacturing and rework the tubes and... How much product had you made at the time? At that point, not a ton because we were still a very small company, but it was probably, you know, five or $6,000 worth of product, which was not, you know, not great at that stage. But we didn't anticipate that the formula was as aggressive as it was with this particular uh, substrate. So, Was there another situation where you made product that, that you that because of your commitment to quality where you had to pull... Yes, there was. We <laughs> so we tried. It's a really good question, Wayne. You've obviously had a lot of experience with this. <laughs> um, we had tried to make a hundred percent natural formula, so we used a preservative from South Korea that was three hundred times more expensive than a phenoxyethanol. But we really wanted to be able to make a hundred percent natural claim on the product, so we were making a baby lotion, and it was a launch of a new baby lotion. And we used this preservative, and it had passed preliminary micro, and all the lab batches had passed with flying colors. We went into the mass manufacturing process, and it failed micro. And the reason being because once you're in a mass manufacturing environment, there's just more that can get introduced into the product, and the preservative just wasn't robust enough to kill it all off. So we had to dump a lot of product. How much product did you make? Uh, it was about $40,000 worth of product. Wow. It was a big deal. Um, lesson learned. We reverted to Phenoxy, which is the Whole Foods approved preservative, and we use it at the EU level, which is really low. And someday the natural preservative systems will be robust enough and we'll migrate to those. We're hopeful that it's soon, but you know, they weren't quite there yet. So, so moving from obviously big organizations to having a startup of your own at that point in time, what was sort of some of the biggest contrasts that you saw? I'm sure there were many, uh, but anything that really kind of either caught you by surprise or was, you know, a bit more of a challenge than you expected. Good question. I think, you know, for me, the challenge was really being so cross-functional in my role. I had come from a marketing background, and there's certainly enough to do in the marketing function in any brand company. Um, and so balancing that with all of the other roles you have to play, HR, which is my absolute least favorite <laughs> function in the company, um, ops, you know, initially I was also ops. Uh, which I actually like quite a bit, but, you know, my capability is somewhat limited. Um, and uh, I think it was it was hard to adjust to the fact that I just wasn't going to have the same amount of time to focus uh, on marketing and to focus all of my attention on how to sell the product. It was more about, you know, everything else that has to happen as well uh, is, was the biggest challenge. As you kind of think about where you're spending a little bit more time now, is it more the HR function or is it, uh, no, where, where is it thankfully. now? <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm able to spend most of my time in marketing and business development, which is and product development, which I sort of group in marketing, which is great. It's what I love. And I've got a strong COO who we just brought on a year ago who runs finance and ops. And we have a new VP of finance who's fantastic. We have a phenomenal VP of ops who's been with me since uh, for the last three years. And then my head of sales is extremely strong. So it's now allowed me to lean into marketing and um, we're really ramping up our social efforts and really trying to tell the brand story in a mo more robust way. And uh, we're seeing traction, which is great. So it's it's fun to do marketing again. <laughs> but backing up to those early days, how, how did you fund the business? So initially, we I took an investment from eight friends and family. So really small investments from my dad, my brother, um, and a very good friend at the time um, who is a very successful Canadian entrepreneur, but he was initially just a friends and family investor. So we took enough money to carry us through sort of the first, what we thought would carry us through sort of the first year. And, uh, and then how long did it turn out to carry you for? Uh, probably about six months. <laughs> it tends to be the case. Yeah. 
Maybe oh, less. It's hard to remember. Always takes um, longer and costs more. Yes. It's like building a house. That's right. It? So this this man, John Risley, who was one of our initial friends and family investors, uh, started to really, as we formed sort of the concept of the business and started to sort of investigate the industry a bit more, he got very excited. He doesn't typically do B2C businesses. He's never done anything in this space and isn't really a fan of consumer businesses, but saw the uh, potential of SkinFix. So we're extremely fortunate because he has continued to fund the business since that point. So we've been really lucky. So one of the things that we had talked about was sort of the entry into shoppers, which I guess for folks who don't know uh, and who aren't Canadian, um, it, 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 for the people in the U.S., it's basically Ulta plus a CVS and multiply that by a lot. It's an incredibly important account in Canada. Um, but even thinking about sort of transitioning from just a shoppers to additional accounts and coming into the United States, we'd love to kind of learn a little bit more about how you did that, how you approached it. We were so blessed to have a, an extremely successful business at Shoppers Out of the Gate, which we kind of, you know, took us a little bit by surprise. I mean, year one, it just took off. And um, so we had not thought about expanding past Canada at that stage, but I was encouraged to go to a Women's Wear Daily Beauty Summit um, in that first year just to sort of get back into the beauty industry and network with some people and sort of, you know, target a few retailers to try and talk to. And I ended up, funnily enough, in an elevator on the last day with Christina Hennington from Target, who ran beauty for Target at the time and runs it again, thankfully. Um, we love her. Uh, and told her a little bit about the business and that we were having success at Shoppers, which, of course, Christina knows well. And she asked us to come to Minneapolis and meet with her team. So, Did you describe something to her that really stood out to her and why? why she invited you guys to Minneapolis? Yeah, I think what resonated, because I literally had four floors, was natural, Hopefully clinically it stopped proven. at every floor. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I love the fact Watch that this time. is an actual elevator pitch. It was. In an, <laughs> and, and I had stalked her for three days, and every time I tried to get near her, there were, you know, groups of people around her, and I never actually got a chance to talk to her. And I walked into this elevator, and it was just she and I. And I thought, oh, my gosh. You so know, so is- you basically saw her go into an elevator, and then you followed her in. And I ran in after her. <laughs> did you do one <laughs> of the ones the where, you right. hit, and then, where you hit the red button exactly. on the elevator, and it just stops? Exactly. I saw the other brands coming, and I hit the button to shut the door. Um, but I said, you know, we're natural. We're clinically proven problem-solution skincare, And that, that sort of, you know, was it. She said, wow, that sounds like what we're looking for, and I'd be really interested to to hear more. And uh, she put me in touch with her team, and we went to Minneapolis two weeks later. So you launched all stores at Target. Yes. What what, what happened from there? Well, out of the gate, um, we leaned in heavy to marketing because we figured we are you know, a new brand launching on the scene nationally in the U.S., and we really need to, to invest. And it worked. We were the number three brand in Derm Skincare in the first year at Target. Target was thrilled. We were thrilled. Um, what does that mean? What is Derm Skincare? Like, s- what does that encompass? So that's sort of your CeraVe's, Cetaphil, Aveeno, and Lactin, those brands. So the fastest growth area of skincare at Mass. Uh, this is in the body care section, not the facial. So the body is a little bit less competitive because the big brands like CeraVe and Cetaphil do most of their business in the facial skincare category. But that said, we were still doing really well with three SKUs out of the gate. We had developed a couple of new products for Target because they wanted our original balm, but they also wanted a daily lotion and they wanted a hand cream. So they were the impetus for us creating those new products. And we had positioned them sort of as products that were for eczema or dry skin, um, a sort of all over everyday products. And they had said to us after the first year, you know what, we think there's an opportunity to go much more hardcore in eczema and then have a daily skincare line. So we repositioned with them. Um, they, they helped us move through the inventory we had at retail to make way for the new launch. And then we relaunched with them with six SKUs uh, in year two. But how did you activate the brand being a, a new brand in the U.S., a new brand at Target against national players? Yeah, we tried a lot of different things. Uh, we tried digital, uh, social, obviously, and we did actually some traditional print. 
We tried even point-of-care advertising in Durham's offices. We kind of sprinkled our marketing funds around to see what would, what would work. Um, interestingly, initially, traditional print advertising really worked well for us. I think partly because we are problem solution and we have a big story to tell. We have clinicals. We're dealing with condition-specific skin issues. So it's not just a natural skincare company. So the consumer sort of needed a little bit more meat on the bone than we could necessarily deliver on a, on a traditional digital ad. But digital, we got some traction on digital as well. But we did see a spike when we advertised in print in certain books, which was interesting. We hadn't expected that to happen. But it's from there, tar- So you have Target. What did you do from there? So we continued to build um, the SKU count in hand and body. Um, and uh, we then migrated to baby and to first aid um, with mixed success. Um, some SKUs did well, others not so well. Were you locked in as a Target exclusive brand? Is that why it was all within Target of what you're describing? Yeah, we were initially uh, for the first year. And then going into year two, we didn't expand simply because we didn't want to take the risk yet to go into a big U.S. drug retailer or to really expand much beyond Target until we were confident we were gaining traction and could really succeed. I think the challenge for Skin Fix is we were the first and only natural brand to launch in the conventional skincare set. I think today we're still the only natural brand in the conventional skincare set at Target, which is hard because the benchmarks are exponentially higher than they are in natural. So when we look at IRI data, in a lot of cases, we have SKUs that would be in the top 10 SKUs overall if they sat in naturals. But in the conventional set, you know, we're up against some big brands. So it's really difficult to compete head-to-head with those products. So we wanted to give ourselves a little more time to really ramp up. Do you find Target is comparing you to a natural brand like Pacifica, or are they comparing you to the national the national conventional brands? So they were comparing us to the national brands. And we weren't buying IRI until this past year just because it's expensive. So we were flying a little bit blind. You know, we didn't have the information to make the case. Um, so... We have a lot more information now, which has been really helpful. And you know, we find, and I know you guys know this, but the retailers aren't going to do the analysis for you. <laughs> you have to bring them the data, and they're only going to you know listen to the people that are bringing the data. So when your competitors are bringing the data, saying you're not performing, and you don't have the data to combat that, it's a challenge. Would so, you have bought the data earlier if you did it all over again? thousand percent, yeah. It would have been the best investment we could have made at the time. We didn't know that. So for all of you future skincare entrepreneurs out there, if you're going into mass, buy the data. You need the data. And I would actually just even add that, you know, as an entrepreneur, uh, for entrepreneurs, as you kind of think about sort of, you know, is it good spend? Someone else is actually using that data, you know, for their own benefit most of the time, right? Whether it's a retailer or a competitive brand. So you got to control your own message. So 100%. That was one of our key mistakes. Especially if you're going to be in a conventional set and go against national brands who have all the data. so Yes. And, and it's there are pros and cons, I, I would assume, right? Given the fact that if you're in that conventional set, you get a ton of foot traffic, right? Because you are kind of competing against the big boys. The flip side, though, is that you've got these incredible hurdle rates um, that you have to sort of be able to meet as well. So, you know, it's, it's, the data is important so you can actually sort of make a case for yourself as sort of an emerging brand. Yes, and I think you were the person that first told me that, Robin, oh. when I met you a couple Shout of years ago. Robin. Shout out to Robin. Apparently, yeah. I say the same thing over yeah. and over again. That's he says too the same bad. thing to me all oh, the time, man. so he must, where, he must have it down. Yeah, this is where private equity that has experience in this category is very helpful. <laughs> Another key learning. So when did you transition out of, out of Target? Or moving it out of, I mean, into additional retailers, that is. We moved into Ulta in uh, 2016, late 2016. So that was our second big U.S. play. And we were really excited to be at Ulta because, you know, while we're problem solution, we're very much a beauty brand. And we felt that Skin Fix was really the intersection of wellness meets beauty and that the beauty industry was really ready for more sort of wellness type products and products that were going to treat concerns. So Ulta was a, was a very important retailer for us to really put our stake in the ground and say we're first and foremost a beauty brand. 
So with Ulta, it was a really interesting learning for both, I think, SkinFix and Ulta in that we, Ulta really wanted us to launch facial skincare. As you'll know, facial skincare is 90% of the category, body's only 10. They sort of said, we can't really build a business off a body brand. We want you to launch face. They also felt the Ulta girl wasn't really going to be a problem solution consumer, that she went elsewhere for problem solution. She came to Ulta for beauty. So we launched a line of 10 facial skincare SKUs exclusively for Ulta in order to get distribution. We went into full distribution, all 900 stores. I think another key learning there. Um, and In what regard? In that it was probably too much too soon. Um, I think they would agree. Uh, Lisa, our, our DMM, has said to us now she probably would have put us in 100 stores initially. You know, there are benefits to going into national because you can do more national advertising and drive more traffic on a national level. But there are obviously downsides, which is that it might have been just too much too soon. Um, also, too, we didn't anchor the brand in our heritage problem solution. We started with a whole new line that the consumer had never heard of or seen before. Oh, so it wasn't in addition to your core line. It was no. in lieu of. In lieu of. So we ended up after a year being um, in a position where we either had to lean in and invest heavily in foot, you know, door-to-door uh, sales support for the brand and to try to really get some traction that way, which was going to be a huge investment, or to take it out and migrate to online add our problem solution portfolio and see if the Ulta girl was going to respond. And she has responded. So that's what we did. We pulled out a store, migrated online with a full assortment of SKUs, and we're hitting four times the benchmark for weekly sales on Ulta.com and doing more sales on Ulta.com than we did in 900 stores. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. And and when you went in Ulta, was, was there any effect on your target business? Um. No, I mean, not negatively, for sure. Target was actually quite happy that we were going to Ulta in the sense that while they're competitors, um, you know, they would see each other as um, similar in terms of their... Complimentary. complimentary. That's the word I was looking for. Did they want the facial skews after that? They did. We waited a year, um, and then we we did launch face in 100 Target doors, um, it's not going that well, to be honest. Um, and it's really going well at Ulta. And uh, we're and still all only online at this point at Ulta. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And you had mentioned before that part of what you thought sort of the, the selling story was that you acquire a medium that allows for people to understand more about what the brand's all about, why sort of the, the, the point of being basically. And so, obviously, online with Ulta, you've got a little bit more of a storytelling platform, potentially, where they can kind of click through and learn more. We've got a whole brand presentation. Right. And it just, it it looks better. I think the brand is unique in the sense that we're hardcore problem solution, and we treat eczema, we treat keratosis pilaris, and we treat dry skin, and we treat rashes, and we treat tattoos. We We have a product that heals tattoos. And then we have daily skincare for sensitive skin, but you kind of have to see the brand all together to understand what it is that we're about because nobody's really done what we're doing before. Right. And there, it sounds like there's just there's just a component of education that's required, right? It's one of those things where you shop the shelf, there's so much screaming at you, and there's so much sameness out there when you've got something that's unique and requires a little bit more sort of, you know, detail to attention than that you kind of need a medium that kind of affords that. Definitely. Um, which is kind of a, a segue into QVC. QVC. <laughs> we love QVC. We're so grateful to be on QVC. We tried for three years. We wanted to launch QVC out of the gate uh, because we're problem solution and we had clinicals and B&As. We really wanted to be on QVC. What does B&A stand for? Oh, sorry. Before and afters. We have great efficacy in this product line. Uh, We formulate products to be active and so that they work and they do work, which is why I think we get great reviews and we get great clinical results. But QVC gives us an opportunity, to your point, Robin, to tell the story, to talk to the clinicals, to show the before and afters. And uh, and it's a free commercial, basically, to 110 million homes. It's genius. (laughs) And how did you how did you break through there? We just hounded them. (laughs) (laughs) 
we hounded them, and eventually uh, we got to Ellen Lennon, who's absolutely lovely. Uh, she's a phenomenal buyer, and she took a meeting with us, and uh, she and her team took a chance on us and launched us last January with our hand cream. And we sold out in seven minutes, and then we came back two weeks later and sold another 12,000 units in 10 minutes. And, and who's on the show? I have been on the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're pretty good. It yeah. sold, sold it out seven minutes. Yeah, I think the the, the uh, host sold the product. I was extremely nervous, and uh, it, it was clearly the host who sold it. And the product, I think, itself, the clinicals and the before and afters and the efficacy and the consumer testimonials, because we had already been in market and we had done some sampling with C, uh, QVC consumers, and there were a lot of positive reviews and a lot of banter already about the product, which was great. But my colleague Amy Reese is going to be taking the Botanic QVC as of this Friday. So, at Alta, you mentioned your your, your focus and sole focus is on selling through their website. It seems like e-commerce has been a focus for you. Are there other online retailers you've been considering? Yes, e-com has become a really big engine of growth, and we are very keen to launch on Amazon Luxury Beauty. How do you how do you plan on breaking through there? Well, um, we have had a couple meetings with their team who are amazing out in Seattle, and I think they've got a brilliant vision for the beauty business on Amazon and how they're going to build it. So we're working with them on a launch strategy. But you, you seem to like to go kind of top to top. Was there a particular <laughs> way that you have a game plan for this one? I know what you're getting at. So I went to university with Jeff Bezos' wife, Mackenzie Bezos, um, and had been encouraged by some people that I should email Jeff because he went to Princeton and he answers all his emails. And I thought it was a bit of a crazy notion, but I did it. And like a big loser, I wrote an email to Jeff at amazon.com <laughs> thinking there's no way this guy is going to respond to me and he's going to think I'm a complete idiot. But I wrote a note just saying, listen, I, I know your wife. We went to school together. I just think Amazon's amazing, and I'm so proud to, you know, the fact that you're from Princeton and you created this amazing company, and I hope someday to sell my product on the site. And he responded within, like, 12 hours, believe it or not. And what did he say? He said, I'll tell Mackenzie you said hello. You know, great to hear from you. All the best. He said, um, all SKUs on Amazon, yeah. perfect. Zero margin. Yeah. We're going to take a couple percent off the top, <laughs> and we're going to keep 98. No. But, I mean, the guy has to be one of the busiest people on planet Earth. And the fact that he answers emails is just so respectable and cool. And he is my idol, for sure. Well, it sounded also like, coincidentally, on that same day that you got the response from Jeff, you were also getting a little bit more traction at Amazon. Is that We, we, we don't know if that was connected or not. But it's more fun to say that it was. Right, so. right. Well, as I <laughs> said to the, our... It fits, the, it fits the theme of, of your journey. That's right, right. Just, you know, you got to... No shame. You got to just go for it. <laughs> you got to use whatever relationships you have. Right after the break, we'll talk more with our guest, SkinFix CEO, Amy Regan. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com. And chat with us on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. That's at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. We're always looking for questions and suggestions, so reach out. And now, back to our episode with SkinFix CEO, Amy Regan. As you kind of think back on this journey, has there been a specific moment or maybe even a series of moments where it's really been more of a bet the company type of, uh, of, of situation? Yes, the move to U.S. Uh, retail was a big bet the company moment because it really required an investment that was exponentially greater than what we were needing to invest in Canada. And we, you know, we were getting to the point of being within reach of profitability in Canada, and going into the U.S. sort of you know pushed that quite a few years back. Um, we needed to invest heavily in marketing and obviously inventory, so. That was a, a moment where we sort of had to sit back and say, are we prepared to do this and take the risk? Because there are no guarantees in this industry. We had folks telling us to 
not launch nationally to go to regional drug and build the brand slowly and not go to target until we were you know more ready and had more proof that the concept worked in the US but how do you say no to target full distribution i mean that was the dream right and um such good retail partners to this day really good brand builders you guys know you work with them a lot they're they understand small brands they understand our challenges and our struggles and they're just nice people so um, you know, ultimately it was the right decision and it's done a lot for us. We wouldn't be at Ulta. We wouldn't be at QVC if it hadn't been for Target. So, uh, it was the right decision for sure. At that point, there's a lot of there's highs and lows in being an entrepreneur and I'm sure it could be both in the same day. Is there a particular time or moment that, that felt the lowest of the low where you weren't sure if you were doing the right thing? Yes. Um, there was, uh, an early employee, Natalie Owens, who I adore, who talk about a hustler. Wow. Um, if you could ever hire her for one of your businesses, I would highly recommend her. But she was our sales director in Canada for the first two and a half years and helped us with Target as well. And, you know, there were some cultural issues that I kind of wasn't dealing with and some HR issues that were sort of festering that I wasn't dealing with. And she had brought them to my attention multiple times. And I sort of said, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. You know, too busy. I'll get to it. Don't worry. Just keep doing what you're doing. And ultimately she was working really hard and traveling and, um, you know, just decided to, to leave because frankly, cause I wasn't dealing with, with some of these issues. And it was heartbreaking and it was a big wake up call and um, had a bit of a domino effect and the rest of her team left shortly thereafter and we were sort of left with no sales team <laughs> for wow. you know for a while it was a moment that we really had to sit down and say okay we've got to focus on these cultural issues and we've got to make sure that people are getting the support they need that we're interacting with each other and in, in the way that we need to be and that we're uh, building a company that people want to work at um, not just focusing on getting the job done. There was just a little bit of uh, oil and water that needed to be emulsified, and it was really my job to, as the leader to, to step in and, and work it out. And I didn't do it quickly enough, and uh, it was a really low moment. I think Amy Reese and I were both in tears on the phone saying, you know, I wish we could redo this, and, and uh, you know, it was a very dark day, but we got through it and we learned from it. You learn the most from those experiences, I think. Has it changed how you onboard new team members today and or how you manage a team? Yes. I mean, we, first and foremost, we hired an HR manager. <laughs> I, thought you said you love, I thought you said you love HR. <laughs> no. Yes. I'm terrible at HR, but really somebody that culturally represented sort of the vision of how we wanted to uh, build the team and how we wanted to interact as a team and somebody that had sort of more skills um, in bringing very different people with very different backgrounds together into one team. So Melissa was hired shortly thereafter and has done a phenomenal job really coaching me too. I've never been a CEO. I don't know that I ever would have been hired to be a CEO. <laughs> you know, it sort of happened accidentally. I have my skills. I have my you know, my positive points and I have my negative points. So she's been really helpful in coaching me and helping to build the team and, and onboard people to your point in a way that sort of brings them in on, on the right foot. So on the flip side, uh, what's been the highest point and most notable point in this journey for you? I think, you know, the moment we sold out on QVC, it was a, I don't know if you've seen the movie joy, where she sells out and she sells all her mops. I feel like I should say yes. Except Wayne only watches kid movies now. Okay. So <laughs> I, on the other hand, but, have watched it. But the right it. answer is yes. Yes. I, I have watched it on a plane. So, yes. It's a fantastic story. It's a true story. But So it was an amazing moment, but not just because we sold out. I think what was so amazing about it is our entire team in Halifax was together watching and you know drinking wine and it was a real moment of camaraderie and then we had our remote team members all watching and there were three people with me at QVC and we had no idea what to expect. You know, I went on air, I was terrible. I was like weaving all over the place and thank God Sean Killinger is a genius and really good at her job. And we got off air and my team just looked at me and they said, we have 780 people on the phone and zero units left. I think that means we sold out. And it was just like we just started screaming. And it was just such a raw, 
passionate, beautiful moment. It was so emotional for the team. I called the team. Everyone was crying. I mean, it sounds so silly, but it's not at all. We didn't have any idea what was going to happen on QVC and if, you know, we were going to sell anything at all. So it was, it was an awesome, awesome pinnacle. At this point in time, um, what's keeping you up at night? (laughs) We are, um, you know, at year five, and we have two businesses in three markets, um, but it's time to get profitable. And so that's really what the senior team and I are focused on. Uh, we've got a great path. We know sort of what we need to do to get there. Uh, we have a very sort of short-term horizon to get there, but we really want to get there. So that keeps all of us up at night. <laughs> What's the biggest lever that needs to be pulled? Is it just scale or? It's uh, really more top line. You know, um, it's also controlling costs and trying to route out things that are non-essential. And we've really clamped down on some things like travel, for instance, and just, you know, trying to figure out without handcuffing the business what we really need to spend and where. We've also gotten a lot better about analyzing our ROIs from a marketing perspective. We've hired a director of digital who's really helping us analyze what's working and what's not working online and on social just getting smarter every day, buying IRI data, buying MPD data, understanding sort of where we sit in the market and uh, what our competitors look like and kind of what we need to do to continue to move the needle. What's the drive to be profitable? Is it to, is it for exit purposes? Is it to be for funding? Like, what's it's to the drive? Stop there? taking money from other people and diluting <laughs> <laughs> equity. It's a, it's I a, mean, this yeah. is the reality. Yeah. So, uh, and also too, there's just a sense of, you know, it's responsibility, right? There's a certain point at which a company, if it's viable, needs to be profitable and self-sustaining. And, you know, we invested a lot in our business in clinical testing. We invested in a big derm program. We're a different animal. We're not just a natural skincare company. We're very much a clinically proven derm brand, which does cost more money. Um, but, you know, it's really important to us as a group of people that we find a way to prove from a P&L perspective that this is a viable long-term business. Can you believe that this formula has been around since the 1800s and then Amy's grown it to this degree since then? What a windfall. I mean, that is incredible. But, you know, other founders, have they see a need, they try to fill it. But honestly, the scaling it to the level that SkinFix has in such a short amount of time, that's exceptional. What gets me excited about the business is that it's a really big idea. She's taking on the big guys. She's not focusing on a particular niche. That takes skill and that takes a lot of guts. It takes a great deal of sacrifice to be able to take on a challenge this big. But even as impressive is Amy always carves out time for fun with the fam. I have two kids, one 12 and 13, and they're addicted to Broadway shows, which is really cool. We saw Hamilton. They know the entire um, soundtrack from start to finish. I mean, and it's a tough soundtrack. I don't know if you've seen Hamilton, but they rap and it's really fast. And so we love to just turn on the Sonos and listen to show tunes and dance around like fools. <laughs> Where'd you see them? We saw them in New York. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I'm going to see Dear Evan Hansen with my daughter next weekend. I'm really excited. And, and you mentioned you moved back to Halifax because you started a family. Yes. Yeah. So when I, when I got pregnant with Izzy, my oldest, my daughter, we were living in London and you know, we don't have any family there. It's a really expensive city, and I loved my job. I was working for Space NK, but we just couldn't seem to make it work financially with a nanny full-time, so we moved back to Canada. Did you grow up in Halifax? No. I grew up in the suburbs of New York and Los Angeles. Oh, so you're not a native Canadian. I'm not. You, you just you... outed me, Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fake Canadian. All right, so now we're to the rapid-fire part of the show. And uh, what we're going to do is, in the next 60 seconds, we're going to hit you with some really hard-hitting questions and get to know Amy a little more. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. All right, countdown starts now. The first thing you read every day is? The New York Times. What's your favorite movie? Enigma. Who's your celebrity crush? The guy from Outlander. Karaoke song you're most likely to belt out? Living on a Prayer. Your hometown is famous for? In and out Burger. What's your guilty pleasure? Chocolate zucchini loaf. First car you ever drove? A crappy Renault. Do you recline on airplanes? I do. 
If you could drink one thing for the rest of your life besides water, what do you choose? Spindrift. Good answer. <laughs> what was your last New Year's resolution? Uh, to not eat chocolate zucchini loaf. <laughs> if you were stranded on an island, you could only bring one thing. What would it be? Concealer. What's the last hashtag you used? Hashtag woke up like this. Where's the next place you'd like to travel? Uh, South Korea. If a movie was made of your life, you'd be played by? Oh, uh, I would like to think Charlize Theron. <laughs> nice. Talent you don't have, but wish you did. Singing. What's your most hated food? Uh, God, I don't... Uh, oregano. Does that count? If you could be any pro athlete, who would you be? Oh, God. I don't know many pro athletes. Who's the quarterback that's married to... Tom Brady? Model? Yes, I yeah. would be him. Pol- political issue you care most about? Those are hard. Yeah, they get I'm hard. like, I'm athlete, like athlete. I can't think of anyone. They get harder as we go along. So I know a lot of the audience is wondering, what, what advice do you have for them if they're entrepreneurs and want to start their own business? I think the most important thing for me anyway is talking to other people. So, you know, I talk to Robin a lot. I talk to other investors, private equity, and especially other entrepreneurs a lot because it's tough. It's really, really tough. And if you can talk to people that have been through it or are going through it or have friends that are going through it, um, it's, I find it's really helpful. I met with Joe Malone a couple weeks ago in London, had drinks with her. She was my former boss and she's two time entrepreneur and she just really put my mind at ease and, and made me feel good about what I was doing. So it's important to have a network. Is there anything that they should filter? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know, right? It's hard to know what to filter. You kind of don't know until you're there. What maybe was bad advice versus good advice. So I think you kind of have to go with your gut, kind of collect all the info, and then try to figure it out. Well, Amy, really appreciate you spending some time with us today and uh, know that you've got an incredibly busy schedule, but hopefully you've had some fun. um, And it's been great to continue to get to know you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Robin and Wayne. It's It's been awesome. It's been fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with Neil Grimmer, founder and CEO of Habit, a science and nutrition startup that uses your DNA to create personalized meal plans. But it wasn't just the former Plum Organic CEO's business savvy that got him here, but his own health struggles as well. Too much travel, too much work, you know, quite frankly, too much stress, not enough sleep, not enough good food, not enough of the principles that we actually were hoping to, to deliver to families across the country. And so, um, you know, sort of the irony, we we're so focused on getting healthy food to kids, like true of many parents out there, like your own health takes a hit. That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.